0: and when you say India maybe it's not really birds that pop up in the mind of most people but rather Taj Mahal and tiger right? no
1: no question about it It I've been to the Taj Mahal probably 20 or 25 times and I have never once not been absolutely enthralled by the vision of that perfect monument as you walk through the, the door and you see it for the first time it is it is an experience that is absolutely unique in the world and and one that is as i say i'd I'd never tire of it and every time it it just takes my breath away when i see it
0: Hello everyone and uh, this is bucket list birding podcast the uh, we have a very prominent guest today and this is peter kessner the number one birder e-birder in the world right now he's got top of the list and he is also uh, probably the one of the few people in the world that have seen more than nine thousand four or five hundred species in that range and um He's a biologist from uh, Cornell University. He also worked as a Peace Corps volunteer and then became a diplomat and has worked in a number of countries all around the world and birded everywhere. Welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Thank you, Gunnar. It's nice to be here.
0: All right. We just finished the birding tour in uh, central Peru, and um, we've been looking for very special birds to get your life list a bit higher can you tell a little bit about the um, experiences you have had here and the main purpose of the trip
1: yeah the main purpose of the trip Gunnar was to catch up with several split ant that had come out from a um, article that was published last summer uh, where uh, Eisler and his co-authors took three species the rufous ant pitta, chestnut ant pitta, and bicolored ant pitta, and looked at their looked at them very very carefully and ended up with 16 species so there was a total of 13 species that were gained from that process of the 13 new ones i had seen eight of them but five of them i had not seen so the main reason for coming down here was to catch up with those last five birds
0: okay and uh, it was very successful
1: it was Uh, we started off in a place called Sina which is a small town right on the border with Bolivia and found Grallaria sinaensis, which is one of the new species just described which has one of the smallest ranges of any of the ampetas, apart from the Peria and the Santa Marta ampedas which are both on one mountain basically Uh, this bird is just found in, I guess, maybe about 50 kilometers from one, one side of its known range to the other side of its known range and it's a bird that um, very few of any uh, birders have ever seen.
0: Okay. Um, well there were some other antpitas also in in central peru.
1: Yeah, we, we spent uh, about a week in in the Oxum Pampa Satipo road area. There were three antpitas for me there, O'Neill's antpitta which showed very very nicely on the Santa Barbara road and then the Oxum Pampa antpitta, uh, Gralaria centralis, which we'd spent a couple of days around Pampa looking for it with uh, no luck, but when we got to the lower part of the Satipo road, we found it pretty quickly. And then the last one of those sort of middle of the uh, country birds was the Hunin antpitta, which is on the top part of the Satipo road, which showed marvelously. A bird came out and was hopping, literally hopping on the side of the road and crossed the road right in front of us. It was just magnificent. And then the last one was an adventure that Gunnar and I just did to Ayacucho, which is a, another place where very few people have been. I know Barry Walker went there uh, 2000 and gosh, 15 or so, about five years ago. And also a guy named Josh Beck, who is an intrepid world birder, uh, was in a little town called Rumichaka in 2016. And he was primarily looking for an endemic thistle tail there. And uh, heard an pitta, but didn't bother to see it, unfortunately. Something he regrets to this day. So we went to uh, to Rumichaca to see the ayacucho antpitta, Grallaria ayacuchensis, and uh, took us a little while. We spent uh, probably over an hour the first uh, day or so trying to tape it in, and then finally the second morning we found some beautiful habitat. Um, and in, Ironically, it's habitat, elfin forest that has been um, damaged by cows grazing and because of the cows moving around in it, it allows you to, to see better and to move around inside the elfin forest, which normally would be very difficult. But we found a good place that looked like a good place to see it and darned if two birds didn't jump right out and, and serenade us right in front and we got pictures and, and uh, recordings. So all in all, all five birds are in the bank, and uh, looking forward to the IOC and eBird recognizing them this summer. And also, uh, in addition to those five, I picked up another ten lifers along the way. So it turned out to be 15 lifers in about three weeks, which uh, they all add up.
0: What is your current life list then, if you count these new alpitas?
1: Uh That's a good question. I need to I need to go back to the IOC. The, it, my eBird list I can look at immediately, but the IOC I've got to do some some finagling to get the the numbers in, but it should be around uh ninety five, fifty five, somewhere in that range.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw on SurfBird that you were at at nine thousand five hundred forty. So right. before this trip, so, so 15, uh, 15, fifteen new birds. Yeah. that's a remarkable life achievement you have been uh, birding for a long time and we're going to segue into uh, this uh, the main feature of uh, today's show we we will be talking about bucket list birding and your experiences from india can you tell us when you first experienced india
1: yeah i had i had a remarkable um, experience when i was young and when i was just uh, 13 years old i met a kid in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was growing up and his parents were going to India and my friend, Battle, uh, didn't want to go to India, particularly, so his parents let him bring a friend along. So I spent a school year in New Delhi, India, at the American school from 1967 to 68. Had a wonderful time, um, saw lots of things, did the family I was living with, did lots of uh, humanitarian things, so we... Uh, did volunteer work at the government hospital cleaning syringes in the days when syringes used to be reused and we were actually cleaning the needles out of these nasty syringes. <laughs> um, and we had a great time. We got to see the Taj Mahal for the first time, which was a remarkable experience. But along the way, I got 155 birds, 145 of which were lifers for me. Uh, such things as a khalij pheasant, a green-backed tit, uh yellow billed blue magpie some really spectacular birds even as a child ironically i was back in india in, in the early 1980s as a young diplomat and on one day i saw 169 birds so it, it just shows you when you're 14 years old you're not quite as efficient as you are as an adult
0: <laughs> yeah that's, that's very true so uh, um now um uh, you're an Former diplomat, and you retired now, and now you're starting uh, a new career in a way because you're also leading tours. How is that compared to the the old of uh, compared to uh, your diplomatic work that you were doing?
1: Yeah, i i I am. I've been extraordinarily blessed in my life, and I, I'd have to say that that my I really loved my work as a diplomat. I. I love the honor of representing the United States overseas in other countries. Uh, I love the lifestyle of being a, a uh, someone who is recognized by the host country as as somebody who represents a, a great nation. And um, at the same time, I was a diplomat. I was birding all the time. So when I retired in September of 2016, it was really a very very seamless segue because it just meant that rather than going to work in the morning I was thinking about where I was going to go birding. So I love my life now, I loved my life then um, and it's it's different I guess in that I'm seeing a lot more birds now um, but as far as the ending of my earlier career um, it, was, it was very very seamless. Now you mentioned I'm doing some bird tour leading. And, for Rock Jumper. Yeah, I'm working part-time for Rock Jumper. Um, interestingly enough, I had met Adam Riley, the uh, one of the founders of Rock Jumper before he started it, when I was a uh, deputy ambassador at the US Embassy in Windhoek, Namibia, and got to know a lot of the, the top South African birders. And I had always had a dream of, of working with Adam. He's a really Impressive individual and somebody that I respected a lot. So it's been a lot of fun um, doing that. And um, the main reason that I'm doing the guiding, the professional guiding, is so that I can share and give back to to people uh, some of the wonderful experiences and, and knowledge that I've gained over the years. Um, it's really just that simple. I, I love. Sharing my my that I love telling stories and, and sharing some of the adventures that I've had. Some some adventures on this trip, which, which may well come into, go, come into, come the in, le- into... <laughs> go into the lexicon. Yeah, um, we heard a
0: lot of stories during this uh, these past uh, couple of weeks, and it's been very enter- entertaining. You have had a very rich life indeed, and you spent a lot of time in India, as I understand. And you also I led have. a tour with Rock Jumper there. All yes, I, I
1: I lived there as a child, as a butcha, as they say in Hindi, uh, 19, 1967 to 68, which is amazingly, you know, just a couple of decades after independence, and the country was very underdeveloped, um, the road system was all left over from the British Raj, Um we used to, when we would travel, we would stay at the dock rest houses. A dock is a postal service. And the, postal, the British postal inspectors would travel around the country and they had little rest houses in each town where they would stay. And back then, there were, no, there were very, very few uh, decent hotels, certainly no international hotels outside of New Delhi. So we would stay in the dock guest houses. So I went back in early 1980s, when I started my career as a diplomat, and spent 18 months in New Delhi. And it was a time of Indira Gandhi and, and a time when our bilateral relations were not very good. Um, and then I went back uh, in 2006 to 2009 as one of the senior-most people in the U.S. Embassy and had a wonderful time. Uh, it was a time when our bilateral relations were, were at a peak and uh, it was a lot of fun. I had a very responsible job and. Um, because I was in charge of visas in India, um, the Indians appreciated what I did uh, quite a bit. Great. And, and that was just the work part. We haven't even talked about the birds. About the birds, the birds
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, for the stuff that we're doing with, uh, with this sort of bucket list idea is that we try to combine not only the uh, birding experience, but also giving... Uh, bucket list in other forms as well it could include mammals it could include sites you want to see and when you say India maybe it's not really birds that pop up in the mind of most people but rather Taj Mahal and tiger
1: right? no, no question about it, it taught, I've been to the Taj Mahal probably 20 or 25 times and I have never once not been absolutely enthralled by the vision of that perfect Monument. As you walk through the the door and you see it for the first time, it is it is an experience that is absolutely unique in the world and and one that is, as I say, I, I'd never tire of it. And every time it it just takes my breath away when I see it. Tigers are also great. Um, there are some wonderful places. Corbett Park is an excellent place to see tigers, and also Ranthambore is probably the yeah. most in, the most the easiest place, the most famous place for seeing tigers, the Ranthambore National Park. Uh, both of those places I've been to many times. And in fact, the three-week trip that, we, that I led with Rock Jumper just before the COVID break uh, lockdown back in early 2020 um, went to, to... We spent several days at Corbett Park and saw tigers there, and we also had a, a, a morning at, uh, at the Taj Mahal. Did you include Ratanbor and in that? We did. We we got as well, we yeah. got we got the tigers at Ratanbor and we had, I think we had six or seven, um, tiger view uh, sightings during that, that tour. We also saw, uh, sloth bears and lots of monkeys and lots of antelopes and deer. It was a it was a great trip. It's a long trip. It's almost three weeks, but yeah. uh, it was a, a a a wonderful tour. We had a great great bunch of people
0: sounds uh, fantastic. Uh during the trip that we do also we include uh, and I think you did as well the Keolada National Park in in um, Bharatpur and uh, that you must have gone there lots of uh, times before uh, it was uh, sort of regulated because I understand now that the uh, um the uh, cranes the um
1: Siberian cranes? Siberian
0: cranes don't winter there anymore. Can you uh, tell us a I little think, bit th- about that story? I
1: think that, that I, I actually saw the Siberian cranes in early 1982. Yeah. Um, but they haven't been seen there in, in quite some time. And I believe that the, that Western population of Siberian cranes, it's, I don't think it's a question that they don't go to Bharatpur. I think that they're just becoming extinct. Their oh, okay. numbers are dwindling, sadly. And, uh, I've heard that there there may be a couple of places, a couple of birds that are seen, but it's a very, very small population, unfortunately. But that said, there are some great birds in Bharatpur, yeah. and it's a really easy place to bird. They're, they're raised buns or, or not really dikes, sort of low dikes and, and roads where you can get out and get very, very close to wonderful, wonderful birds. And it's very easy... I said that I, I saw 169 birds. It's very easy to see 169 birds in a day if you go to Barret Pour.
0: Yeah, I was very impressed by the wetland there. We had two, two almost two full days, and um, uh, my wife was with me as well, and she's not a birder, <laughs> <laughs> and she enjoyed, she enjoyed it a lot the first day just because the birds are big and uh, they're spectacular. Yeah, spectacular. The
1: Sarus cranes, the largest cranes in the world, are are very common there. You've got. A couple of species of pelicans, cormorants, eagles, beautiful kingfishers, storks. Storks. It's it's really quite remarkable. Yeah.
0: And then it's all settled in, in. Also, so the second day, my wife she went actually uh, on her own uh, with a bicycle and visited temples around in the area as well. And the monks there they were sort of feeding the animals. Really <laughs> tame monkeys came into Uh, into these temples she had a great time the the
1: hindu the hindus have a a particular attraction to uh, um, the rhesus monkey the hanuman monkey yeah Um, so they very often will will feed them
0: we also noticed that um, we thought that going to Taj Mahal was only going to be a cultural experience but it turns out that viewpoint (laughs) over the river is actually Spectacular for birding as well. Yeah, we
1: got, I think my Ever checklist for for the the back door of the Taj Mahal was about 30 birds, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not bad at all.
0: All right. Um, So, uh, yeah, we sort of covered India. Is there any other places in India that you would sort of, if you have a very short time and uh, say you do a five-day tour to see Taj Mahal, Bharatpur and Ratanbor, etc., what other places in India would you sort of recommend that people would add to get the most bang of the bucks if they have limited time? Yeah, Say they were three, if, four days more, whatever.
1: Yeah, um, one of the other things that I did uh, just before the COVID lockdown in early 2020 is I was a leader for the a, a Rock Jumper South Indian tour. Mm. And um, one of the real, real special parts of South India is Kerala. Yeah. And for somebody who is looking to balance birding and sort of more traditional sightseeing, they have uh, live-aboard boats that go on the backwaters of Kerala. And it's one of the really special places in the world, and it's very close to some, some excellent birding areas like Periyar Park, and there are also some local, um, local reserves that, that have very good birds staked out, things like uh, Sri Lankan frogmouth. Yeah, and uh, some of the endemic birds of, of South India.
0: Yeah, we did a pre-trip also to Kerala and saw the Sri Lanka frog month as well. Yeah, but it was sport. more of a sort of traditional birding there. Um, not n- we did not have a lot of cultural experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's culture all the time when you're in India, of course. Yeah, but uh, and,
1: uh, you you can't avoid Indian culture when you're the <laughs> and food. food. Is, the food is delicious and tell me about the food in uh, India. What what
0: are your favorites?
1: Uh, my favorite. My favorite dish in the world of all all cuisines is buttered chicken, murg mm-hmm. uh, makani, um, and I I have a sort of a a hobby of testing buttered chickens. And when I lived in, in 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 New Delhi in 1981-82, there was a a restaurant called the Shiraz Restaurant that was underneath of a flyover, the Defense Colony flyover, and it was the Absolute perfect butter chicken. So I've been measuring all the butter chickens of the world, <laughs> and ironically, I was in Yemen not too not maybe ten years ago or so, twelve years ago now, and we were staying at the Sheraton Hotel, and in the basement of the Sheraton Hotel in Sanaa, Yemen, they used to have an Indian restaurant that had a really good butter chicken. It was like an eight on a scale of ten. No. Uh, so I, I keep looking for that perfect butter chicken. I haven't found it yet, but I found some pretty good ones that sounds excellent.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, right, so we talked about India. Let's uh, jump a little bit around the world. You've been a diplomat in how many countries?
1: Oh, and I've and lived, I think I've lived in 11 or 12 different countries over the years, yeah. including India twice as a diplomat. It's the only place I went back to. Yeah. But uh, I've also visited, for example, when I was in India, I, I went to the Maldives Islands, I went to Nepal, I went to Bhutan, I went to Sikkim... So, as though I've only lived in, in a dozen or so countries overseas, I've also visited a total of 181 eBird countries and territories. Wow. So, I've been, been to a lot of different places.
0: Is there anyone that has been in submitted list of more countries than you? I
1: don't know. EBird doesn't have an easy way of, of determining that, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would be surprised, though yeah i uh, you never know
0: you never know okay um right so also you are as uh, quite famous for having a antpita in your name can you tell us a little bit about the discovery of uh, Cundinamarca antpita uh, gralaria uh from Bo- bogota area close to bogota in colombia
1: yeah that Again, you know, I said it earlier I've been blessed. I, I've had so many wonderful things happen to me, and this was, was just one of them. I was um, doing some, some work on the weekend on uh, eastern, the base of the eastern slopes of Colombia with an American missionary group that was having some security problems. So I went down to uh, talk to them, learn more about their situation so that the embassy could serve them better. And on my way back on Sunday afternoon, Uh, I had been told down there that there was a television or a a communications tower on a mountain on the east side of the Andes uh, near the town of Monte Redondo. So, on my way back, driving back to um, Bogota, I stopped at Monte Redondo and went down the road towards the tower, and in the afternoon as I was driving along, stopping, birding, it was a wonderful, wonderful road, lots of great forest. And I heard a bird that I didn't recognize, so I made a tape recording of it, and back in the days when we used tape, and uh, played the back, and fortunately the bird came in. And as it got closer, I would make better recordings. And over a period of 45 minutes, I kept taping the bird, and taping the bird, and taping the bird. And then all of a sudden, the bird was calling from behind me. It somehow had crossed the road without my knowledge or permission. So I crawled up inside of the forest on the other side of the road, um, and after another five or ten minutes of taping, the bird popped out right on a, um, a fallen log, right out in the open. And I immediately knew that it was, it was something unique for Columbia.
0: Excellent. So that that area later became, or maybe it was even then, a a bit troublesome, and it was off-limits for many years. There were many birders that wanted to go there and uh, didn't do because of security reasons. There was also a kidnapping in that area. That's
1: right. Uh, Three or four birders uh, got kidnapped there. Um, And uh, Gary Stiles, who published the, the description of the bird in 1993, and the Wilson Bulletin uh, noted that, that they were publishing the account somewhat prematurely because they had not done the field work that they wanted to because of the uh, guerrillas that had invaded or had gone into that area and had made it unsafe. So yeah, in fact, uh, my recollection is, and I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that Bogota, Colombia, in the late 1980s. This was in October of 1989. Um, was the most dangerous foreign service post in in the world, and uh, we were very, very strictly constrained in where we could go and where we couldn't go.
0: Yeah. So when I a story on my side, when I came out to Peru the first time in 1990, um, I was looking for where I was going to do uh, some field work, and I really wanted to go to Colombia because Colombia was the sort of the the most uh, species-rich country in the world, so that I would be able to see more birds there. But because of security reasons, I went to Peru instead. But Peru was not much better back <laughs> then, <laughs> which I didn't know. Of course, I was just ignorant. Yeah. yeah. And I also had some, some troubles running into, well, being in places where I was not supposed to be. Right. Um, it's it's
1: a, really, a really important thing, and, and you point out, because there, there are still security concerns. Uh, I know that the U.S. Embassy has, has demarcated several areas of, of Peru as being of particular concern for terrorism. And the important thing is to make sure that you, have, you go with somebody who knows what's going on, that has local contacts. Because very often there may be a security concern, but the local people know where the safe places are and where the where the problems are. Uh, for example, we were in an area of, of uh, Ayacucho, where if we had gone maybe another 40 or 50 miles down into the valley into the lowlands, we would have been in an area of active narco uh, narco trafficking, but. Up in the in the mountains at ten thousand feet, they you don't grow cocaine, so it's it's a relatively safe place. And we, because we had good contacts with the locals, uh, we were able to do it. But it's 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 not a place where I would recommend people to uh, just sort of hop on a bus and, and, and go birding and just go there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now it's very important uh, to have uh, some sort of local contacts when you go to new areas that are not uh, often birded, and and it can be actually. Even if there is not sort of on the paper any security uh, concerns, it's still that people are not used to seeing, uh, yeah. you know, uh, white folks. And uh, if uh, if that's the case, and uh, there, and there is some some violence going on nearby, or 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 some shady business going on, they will always be very suspicious, to strangers, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. We, we actually saw that to a certain extent in Ayacucho, there was a certain amount of suspicion among cert, some of the people in the communities that we visited, even yeah. though we had local contacts and, and we knew that the areas that we were going were in fact safe.
0: Yeah, even today when we stepped up the road getting to the airport, uh, we went to a little marsh area and... Uh, it was very rural, of course, and people would be passing there all the time. But as we were standing there watching, there was a lady coming up sure. asking what are you, what are you doing here right. after talking and and it, demanding
1: were, demanding from us to, yeah, to, of, to explain ourselves yeah
0: exactly yeah. so uh, <laughs> and even on our nightly stunt last night when we were <laughs> <laughs> going for a twitch in Wa so tell us about this obsession of, <laughs> of getting trying to cover. As many regional areas uh, as possible yeah
1: I, I, I tell people that, that my my birding passion is multifaceted I, I studied ornithology at Cornell back in the in the early 1970s and uh, was a science teacher in Africa. Uh, one of the main reasons that I became a diplomat was to travel the world and, and to see birds um, I love sort of the competitive angle of it I love. Knowing about birds, I love the science of birds. I love the beauty of birds. I love the, the amazingness of birds that uh, bar-tailed godwits take off from, from Alaska and end up in New Zealand non-stop. My God, how could they do that? Um, there's so many things that I enjoy about birding and, and one of them is is filling in the, the map. And you know as I said, I've been to 181 ebird. Locations, not all of them are, are UN countries, and you can
0: um, see that on eBird, right? Yeah, you on, can see you a, a world map. map if, yeah. if you
1: go to my profile on eBird, you can you can see a map that has a few gray countries still there, and I'm I'm hoping to fill them in along the way. But one of the things I've been doing is is also filling in um, country sub-country um, jurisdictions, political jurisdictions, and for and. How many departments are in it's, Peru? I think it's 40? 23, 23 Only departments. Only 23. Yeah, 26. plus the uh, constitutional 20, 23 province. uh, provinces or departments in, in Peru. And so far I've been to all but three of them. I'm missing uh, two down the far south, and I'm missing Tumbes in the far north. Um, and it's fun to... And you got one to, to see it filled <laughs> Yesterday. in. Yesterday. <laughs> On this trip, we, we did a bit of birding in... ...in... Um, uh, in Apurimak, um just a couple of birds, and then we did a lot of birding in Ayacucho, which is a new new department, and then I found out, even though Gunnar had tried to, to steer me wrong, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't listen to him, and I found out that we were actually only six kilometers away from Juancavelica department, so on our way back from uh, birding in uh, Rumichaca, we stopped off and unfortunately, it was kind of dark when, by the time we got there, and all the birds had gone to sleep. But after about 15 minutes or so, a, a lonely Peruvian pygmy owl started calling, so I had one bird for one Cavelica department, so it's now <laughs> filled in on the map. Oh,
0: That's excellent. Yeah, I when we first started talking about departments, I didn't realize what, uh, because you asked sort of. In a in a in a fashion that was a general uh, terms. General terms. How far is to Juan Camilica, and I said, "Well, no, it's pretty far. I've, I've <laughs> only been once, and it was this road that passes through, and I haven't really done any birding there. But there's a lake and so forth. But I didn't realize we were so close to the uh-huh. north, just going right. north. Yeah. but you
1: didn't you did mention that it had a sort of a convoluted yeah. border, and it was hard to yeah. know just Yeah, but out. that's in the south. So so right. it's, it's well, it has different. in the north too. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the north as well. Yeah. But it's fun. During the, the COVID lockdown about a year ago, I was missing seven eBird states in the United States. Yeah. So I, I drove by myself. I, I hardly had any human contact with anybody along the way. Drove up to the far southeast corner of South Dakota and then went from South Dakota down to Arkansas and Oklahoma and got all the seven states that were a a glaring gap in my eBird uh, map of the united states which is now pristine
0: excellent so uh, you have been birding
1: from early
0: age have you have, what are the sort of first memories of birds that you have Are there any sort of species that pops up to you that you sort of really said oh, wow wow this is well I, I in
1: in terms of a spark bird i really didn't right i had a spark brother And my oldest brother, Hank, uh, is a a fabulous birder, and he managed to satisfy his need for birding by working for the McCormick Company, which is the largest spice company I believe in the world, certainly in the United States and probably the world. And he was a spice buyer, and uh, he got to travel all around the world buying spices, and uh, he Became a birder at age 10. He is eight years older than me, so I was only two So as soon as I was old enough to be cognizant of what was going on around me, which was somewhere around three or four years old I started noticing birds Mm -hmm. and uh, Hank was my my hero when I was young and he's still my hero now Um, and I, we were sort of joined at the hip. So as soon as he got a, a driver's license at age 16, we would go on road trips and, and, and go different places. So sort of memories of that, of that time period, I remember um, a, an orchard oriole at my grandmother's farm in a place called Perry Hall, north of Baltimore. I remember uh, going to look for a uh, mass duck at Loxahatchee Wildlife Refuge. Uh, years and years ago. I remember uh, Hank and I going to Brigantine Wildlife Refuge, which is near Atlantic City, and there was a... Um, we were talking about Bar-tailed Godwit. There was a Bar-tailed Godwit there. And it was way out in the, ch- in the... It was way, way, way far away from the road. So we found an old uh, styrofoam ice chest, put our binoculars in the ice chest, and swam across the channel <laughs> um, out to this this mud flat and and tried to find a bird We we we'd never see it i am sure doing something like that in a wildlife refuge this day would be uh severely frowned upon but back in uh in the early nineteen sixties there was was not nearly as much uh, uh management of those areas as i guess is that is today
0: wow so um do you have any birds that you are, like, uh, any, any particular sort of bucket list birds that you still have not seen that really, really, I know you're very keen on, on ant antpittas. So you can talk a little bit about sure. that. Sure,
1: yeah, I know that the, the, there are about uh, almost 60 species of ant pittas, and I've seen, at this point, I've seen all but seven, I got five on this trip, so I'm doing very, very well. Um, And getting those is a very high priority. Sadly, three of them are in Venezuela. And uh, I'm going to have to wait until our bilateral political relations improve a little bit before that's going to be possible. Um, One of the ant that is probably the most difficult is one very appropriately called the elusive (laughs) ant pitas, eludens. And it's a bird that has been seen by very, very few people. And I only know of two that have actually laid eyes on it. Um, it has been heard, and I, I don't recall how I know this. I'm sure that Andy Whitaker will will either confirm or deny it. But I, I heard that Andy Whitaker was in the presence of one for, for quite some time, but never actually saw the bird. Um, and he's one of the very best... Uh, birders of the tropical forest in, in uh, South America so if he didn't say it then uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what's going to happen but there's there's some recent e-bird records from a very isolated place in far, far, far southwestern Brazil in Acre province mm. so I'm maybe thinking of, of doing an expedition down there and spending a week or so um, I think if, if, if the only thing I'm looking for is that ant um, I, I think I can get it. I have a pretty good cha- pretty good record so far of actually being able to see Ampetus that I'm looking for. So, we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, that's that's probably my most active bucket list birding that I'm doing. Um, the holy grail for me is a bird that lives in a country that I lived in for two years. So you would think if you live in a place for two years you could get the birds that you really want to see.
0: I've been 23 years in this country. I still haven't seen all the birds I want to see. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I um, mean, you know, they're really something. This this is the the Congo peacock, Afro pavo congensis, which is one of the truly remarkable birds of the world. And uh, I had tried to see it in 1978. I had a, a a group of birders that I was leading, and we were planning to to fly it had a friend that had a plane, uh, back in those days in Zaire, you couldn't rent things like that, but I had a, a friend that, that had a pilot and he would lend it to me. And the pilot overflew the landing strip in, uh, I think it was Kamisuga is the name of the town. And a, another plane had landed there the week before and the landing strip was too muddy the wheels got bogged down and the plane had flipped over on his back and was lying in the middle of the, of the runway, Jeez. upside down. And there was no way of getting any heavy equipment. They were going to have to take it apart piece by piece to get it out of there. It was going to take months. So that trip was, was canceled at the last minute. Um, ironically, a woman who preceded me in the little village where I was a teacher in Zaire, a place called Nian Kunde, is right now working in the, the, the Congo rainforest and she posted, she and her, her husband, posted a color photograph from a camera trap of Congo peacocks in their study area. Mm. So, mm, I don't know. So, makes 100%. you very keen, yeah?
0: Yeah. yeah. The, the
1: problem is it's, it's a very unsettled country, and traveling mm-hmm. around the Democratic Republic of Congo is not for the faint of heart. Not that I have a faint heart, but...
0: Uh, More problematic it, it's, than Ayacucho, for sure. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, <laughs> it's sort of in the back of my mind that, that someday something is going to break open and I'll be able to do it. I know that uh, organized bird tours have seen the bird, so... Um, We'll see, we'll see.
0: Amazing. Yeah, uh, coming back to the elusive ampidae. So that's a bird also that occurs in Peru. For for one uh, season, it was seen and heard at Manu Wildlife Center. And and, uh, most of us just thought, well, it it will be there. And I think a lot of us, uh, well, I I certainly missed it. I didn't have any tours going down there at that time. And uh, I think Barry, who's actually part owner of the lodge there at Mano Wildlife Center, only heard it, as far as I know. I don't think he saw I've, it. Yeah, I know. I've,
1: I've, I know one person that said they saw it there, and everybody else that I've heard that, that encountered it um, never heard actually it. saw it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it seems to be a very hard hard bird to see. So yeah. in Peru, the strategy uh, would probably be to... to uh, there's the collecting site uh, it's like close to between Ocayali and and cusco mm-hmm. and uh, that that whole area also known as the Purus area yeah right. uh, the first individuals as far as i know were collected there of, mm. uh, with lsu expeditions so the site in brazil and the lsu sites are uh, there's the town the the capital of of the department is actually right there in, in between, like halfway in between, it's called Esperanza. And they've had, in the past, they've had flights there. So whether they, they will be uh, resumed after COVID or try to find out how, how to get there, that would be yeah. an interesting place to go on an expedition uh-huh. as well. So if anyone count, listens can, to the count, show- count me in. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go birding with myself and Peter, that, there you go you can go and look for the elusive lampirra <laughs> <laughs> I would like to also to, to include in this podcast some tips for new birders maybe you could talk a little bit about the tools that Cornell University has uh, put together like eBird and, and Merlin and you're very uh, uh, prominent uh, uh, contributor to eBird in terms of uh, having the biggest list but you also do Checklist everywhere you go on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I do. I, uh, I, I really, I guess one of the things that, that I've felt as I've uh, gotten up in years, I'm, I'm pushing 68 years old now, um, and I really, really like the fact that by contributing to eBird, you're contributing to science. You're, you're contributing to the knowledge, the scientific knowledge of birds and their distribution. And I've, I find that very, very satisfying and, and it's it's very easy to do. Um, Cornell um, makes it very, very easy. There's lots of um, training and, and other resources online that Cornell offers, uh, most of them for free, but there are also some, some actual courses and things if you want to become uh, a, a better, a better birder, a more knowledgeable person. Including uh, Cornell has a very good online ornithology course. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I think that um, that e-birding is is a a very integral part of what I do. And and I, we were talking earlier about sort of the fun part of filling in the maps and that sort of thing. And that, I, I, I won't lie, that's that's a It's a good part of of what I enjoy doing. But the bottom line for me is is really altruistic, that I am contributing to something greater than myself. I'm contributing to the knowledge of birds. So anybody who has a telephone or a computer can eBird. It's very, very easy. And the, the best data that we can get is your data. Um, whether it's in an area that is, is heavily birded or whether you know, you're know you living in in Peru or or some other country that may not have quite as much uh, e-bird activity uh, every data point helps and every data point uh, means something so it's a I am, I am very much a uh, an e-birder at heart and uh, it's a, a very important thing to do now to talk about people starting off the the best way to learn to bird is to go with that, go out with another birder and I know that sometimes that's difficult, but it really does help um, in sort of separating the the, the wheat from the chaff to, to to know what birds are around is really very important. An ebird to a certain if you're ebirding in a place that has a lot of data. The eBird checklist will tell you what birds are common, what birds are uncommon. It's really important to believe what eBird tells you. Uh, if you go into eBird and and you you think you're you know you're in the United States and you you think you've seen a uh, a common swift, uh, eBird will tell you that's a rare bird, and and that means that you need to get really good photographs. You need to know why it's a common swift and not any other number of swifts that it could be. Um, It's not the quote common swift, which is chimney swift in the eastern United States. Uh, The common swift happens to be a bird of the old world, which is very, very, very rare in the United States. So it's important to follow the lead of eBird. If eBird tells you something is rare, then you really need to think twice or three times um, and In fact, it happens to me. I, I might be overseas, working in a place where I, I uh, haven't birded for 20 or 30 years, and I'll think I see something and eBird says it's rare, and I say, wait a minute, maybe I need to, to, to think twice about that, I go back in the book and then find out that there's a common bird that looks very, very similar that I had forgotten about because it had been so long. So, yeah, it's very important to, to not only use eBird, but to to let eBird direct you, to let eBird mm-hmm. make you a better birder, and that's something that uh, is a little difficult for for beginning birders. But the data are there. Uh, Merlin you had mentioned earlier is a fabulous resource, and it's getting more fabulous every week. There's uh,
0: new packs for all around the world. Yeah, yeah.
1: The you get and all these all these the eBird and Merlin are both uh, free. They're, they they. Uh, work really, really well. When you get Merlin on your phone, you download geographic packs. So there's packs usually in countries, they'll have several different packs, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in. In the United States, there must be at least a dozen packs. Um, But if you travel a lot like I do, it's easier to get a pack for the whole country, especially if you have a large um, memory in your phone. And then if you go to a new country, download the pack, then you're birding, and then you're finished, and you can take it off your phone and, and get a new pack for the new place you're going. But the packs give you photographs, they give you range maps, and they give you um, audio so that if the bird is singing, you can play the, the, uh, the audio on Merlin to compare it with the bird that you're singing. Uh, people also use it to attract birds, which is certainly a, a very, very useful way of using Merlin, but as always, you need to be very judicious in, in attracting birds with any kind of recorded bird song, um, and especially if the bird is, is either in a very heavily birded area or is a particularly rare or endangered bird. Uh, it's best not to use playback at all. But for common birds and certainly for beginners, if you're, you're, uh, you're trying to learn the common birds, using the playback in Merlin is a very, very uh, helpful way of doing that.
0: Yeah, because you get a, an immediate confirmation of the species exactly. if you get a response, yeah. And
1: And in fact, I've used it. Um, a lot of birds are very difficult to tell apart. The impidinax flycatchers, for example, if they're during migration, when they're on their breeding grounds, you can often tell by their habitat and their calls. But during migration, they're they're not singing and they're not in their, their breeding habitat. And very often, if I see something, if I think it's a yellow-bellied flycatcher, I'll play the play the tape and very often the bird you can you watch it and it'll, it'll perk up or maybe even vocalize. Uh, so it's a good a good tool to uh help identify very difficult birds.
0: Yeah. I have uh, had also a lot of use of uh, Merlin. I was birding on New Zealand and the thing um the thing you use, uh, no, actually it was on Tasmania, Tasmania in Australia and I did not have a bird guide but rather did it on my own and uh, so since it was sort of met up with the e-bird lists all the time you could come to a new area and you can just rate the birds in order of commonness and you would see which one of the commonest ones are not on your list and and so if you were in suitable habitat it actually, I played, (laughs) I just pressed the button and up jumped the bird (laughs) that I needed and it happened to me twice Tasmanian endemics. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you, uh, as of today, we were, uh, we took out a local biology teacher from the University of uh, Wamanga in Ayacucho, and he was uh, actually instrumental in getting us uh, right. uh, permits. He's actually from Chungi, uh, the area, uh, the district where Rumichaka is uh, incorporated with. And so he helped out with all the contacts and today we, we did some birding with him, even though he's not a birder, but he was very keen to learn and he, he also learned about these uh, tools. So I think it's very important for, uh, very useful for new birders to use these electronic tools because you get uh, access to knowledge, even if, as you say, if there are no mentors around, how do you do it on your own? Exactly. When we started, it was impossible. We needed a mentor. You you had your brother. Mm-hmm. I joined the bird club a little bit too late. If I had someone that took me under his wing when, when I was younger, I was certainly, I started at a much lower age. And now it's so, so much easier all around the world uh, to actually access uh, knowledge uh, on the internet. Mm-hmm.
1: That's great. So it's, it's a wonderful time to be a birder. It's always a wonderful time to be a birder. It <laughs> it's was wonderful so when fun. I was young. It's wonderful now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, um, um, what other travels are you planning to do this year? Then,
1: um, well, my fir- first thing I'm going to do is go see my wife, who's who has an apartment in in Frankfurt, Germany. She uh, tries to spend most of her summers there. And because of COVID, I haven't been able to, to spend quite as much time as I'd like to because she has, well, she has a residence in Germany, I do not. So I've been, been uh, inhibited from going to, to visit her, but I will be going there pretty quickly, sooner, soon after I get home. Uh, birding tours, uh, birding trips, the next thing I have really isn't until the end of October where I'm going to be working for Rock Jumper again um, in Argentina there's going to be a Rock Jumper uh, cruise to Antarctica including the Falklands and South Georgia and I'm going to be uh, doing a pre-cruise trip to Torres del Paine Park in Southern Chile uh, as a leader and then I'm also doing I'm also going to be leading on the on the cruise and also leading a a quick tour after the cruise, um, up to El Calefate to find the um, uh, hooded grebe, which is a one of the, the great bucket list birds yeah uh, found in southern Argentina. So really between the end of July and um, and the end of August, I'm mostly gonna be doing stuff with my wife. I might we might go someplace in the Caribbean or something to pick up a few birds or do something together, go d- scuba diving, we enjoy doing that together, but uh, no big trips planned. While I'm in Europe, uh, I've got a couple of small holes in my eBird map to, to clean up <laughs> Belarus and San Marino, so I'm hoping to, to go to those two places and get some eBird checklists.
0: Uh, that sounds wonderful. Um, to wrap up a few things here, I, I think one thing that I would like to include in this, uh, in, in this uh, show is recommended literature that you've come across that could either be uh, novels about birds or nature or it could be specific field guides that you're really, really in love with. Is there any particular books that come to mind that you would uh, like to recommend either to new birders or more advanced birders?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. I am I am uh, in the process of writing a review right now of uh, three major Colombian guides: the latest edition of Miles McMullin's, the new uh, Lynx Guide, um, that was uh, authored by Steve Hilty, and then another one that was um, it, that was done by a, a, a Spanish or a Colombian illustrator, and. Um, I must say that the links guides I've been very very impressed with. There's an excellent links guide that's now in the second edition of uh, um, Indonesia. That is just a magnificent book. Um, there's a very good guide to um, Papua New Guinea with uh, Phil Gregory. Um, there have been several of these link guides, and including links guides, including the one to Colombia with with Hilty. There's just a a magnificent book and one of the nice things about the lynx guides uh, similar to the, the handbook of, they have a, a book a one volume book of the birds of the world and in that they have uh, QR codes where you can scan it and then you go to um, the Cornell what used to be the handbook of birds of the world but now is the Cornell uh, all the birds of the world Birds of
0: the birdsoftherworld.org
1: Right, and you get that automatically you go there and get the photographs and sound, everything, just by taking a picture of your book, and in the Lynx field guides, they have that same um, ability so that when you're in the field if you have a an internet capable phone and you have internet capability at that time which is not always, always the case when you're out birding in the middle of nowhere but if you do have that, you can get a picture of the QR code and get a vast amount of information just from one click of the button. So I must say that those links guides have impressed me an awful lot. Okay. Uh, finally,
0: so uh, if people want to reach out to you, uh, how can they reach you? Where, are, where can you be found? <laughs> are you on social media?
1: Um, yes, I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook at Peter G. Kastner. Um, I also have a public profile on eBird and on ebird i list my um my personal email account uh address so if anybody wants to to find me they can they can find me on ebird and then uh my you get access to my my email uh and i enjoy corresponding with people i i even have sort of probably half a dozen people that that send me pictures from Places around the world. Somebody in Indonesia. I get somebody in South India. Um, several people in the United States will send me a blurry picture of some bird and say, "What is this?" And um, I try to I try to help whenever I can. So yeah, no, I'm I'm always 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 eager to uh, to help new people to help anybody uh, to to share what I know. And again, that's why I work for jumper, is to share my knowledge and share my joy for birds. And uh, I'm always delighted to uh, to make contact with new birders and old birders and uh, every kind of birder. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Peter. It's almost been an
0: hour, so it's
1: time uh, flies. Time flies when you're having fun when you're we're fun. talking about birds. <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, thank you very much for uh, coming to the show, and um, um, until next time.
1: All right. Thank you, Bye. Bernard.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Show notes to this episode can be found under 7 slash peter hyphen kestner. That's K-A-E-S-T-N-E-R. I hope you like this episode and that you will leave a comment in the comment section of your podcast provider. Also leave a review if you can and a like. I would be really appreciated so more people find our podcast. And you can also write to me, if you like, to gunnar at sevenwondersbirding.com. And I'll see you next time. Bye.